Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Jamie Baines. Today's guest is Mike Herring, the former Commonwealth attorney for the city of Richmond. Mike did two stints as a prosecutor in the city. The first time as an assistant Commonwealth attorney specializing in drug prosecutions back in the early to mid-90s, then as the elected Commonwealth attorney, where he did nearly three terms before handing the reins over to Colette McEachin, who won her re-election bid recently. I've known Mike for years and am a huge fan, so I'm going to stop talking now so we can jump right into the interview. I hope you enjoy it. And welcome back to the podcast. Today's guest is Michael Herring, former Commonwealth attorney for the city of Richmond. How are you, Mike? Great, Jamie. It's good to hear your voice. It's good to hear yours as well, man. We really miss you there. The, well, um... I miss you guys, believe me. <laughs> and that brings me to a point. Mike, how long were you there? You were there as an assistant Commonwealth attorney, and then you came back, right? What is your kind of background history with that? Yeah, you know, I've I've done a few stints in and out of the private sector, <clears throat> but two pretty uh, good-sized stints with the Commonwealth Attorney's Office. The first was the spring of 92 through the summer of 96, where I focused mostly on drug cases. And then I ran for office in 2005 and served until the, the summer of 2019, as the elected Commonwealth attorney. So all total about, about 18 years. Man. Now I, I, I remember you in both cases. I don't think we worked together much when you were, you were doing the, uh, the drug stuff. We ran into each other. Um, who was the pro- the Commonwealth attorney the first time you were in, uh, you were a assistant Commonwealth attorney. Yeah. My time split almost evenly between first Joe Morrissey. No. Yes. First Joe Morrissey and then David Hicks. Correct. Okay. And then, so what's kind of your background, Mike, with, um, did you, when you went into law, did you want to become a prosecutor immediately or did you want to try different things? Yeah. You know, that's an interesting story. I I had no idea that I would prosecute Jamie. I, I, you know, in the, in 1990, when I came out of school, a lot of the law schools were steering students toward transactional work and, and UVA was no different in that respect. So I came back to work at a big firm where I got some good training, met a lot of good people. But I knew early on that I wanted to be uh, on ground level, if you will, and actually interacting with people and seeing the outcome of my work. I had a conversation with then Justice Hassell, Leroy Hassell, who was on the Virginia Supreme Court. And he listened to me and he said, well, you know, based on what I'm hearing, it sounds like you you have an interest in, in prosecution. And he was right. And and that was it. And so in 92, I left Hunton and Williams and, and went to work for then Joe Morrissey, a, a controversial move in the eyes of many friends. But <laughs> but one <laughs> but one one that I don't regret. How's that? And did you like and so you were there four years initially, right, for that four year stint as a prosecutor? About four and a half, about four and a half. Yeah. And and the last three. Is that right? Last two and a half was almost exclusively drug work. Okay. I mean, literally, but you, you remember the, not that 92 through 90, that 94 through 96 time frame. Yes. The streets were just riddled with crack. And, uh, and, and that was my day, Jamie. It was trying drug cases, trying suppression hearings, trying to figure out ways to build investigations, working with folks on your side. Um, it was tough work. And, and so, you know, in, in retrospect, Jamie, I think it was, it was so voluminous and so tough that it probably burned me out. The first Did it? Time around. Well, yeah. and, and people don't understand. I think a lot of Mike, the the, um, the younger people, how just crazy it was with drugs in Richmond back in the early '90s and up through the middle '90s. 
Oh, that's right. I mean, so now you, you have the the uh, the, op- the opioid epidemic, which is worsened because because of the advent of fentanyl. Mm-hmm. But back then, the, the corners were full of guys and sometimes women, most of whom were loaded up in some way, not just with drugs, but often with guns. Mm-hmm. And that's why Richmond was joked as being one of the more violent cities in the country, certainly by capita. But just on a daily basis, you guys, RPD, you know, I think anybody would agree RPD was overwhelmed, <laughs> just like most urban police forces were by crack. Definitely. And we've talked to a few of the older detectives like Joe Fultz talked about it. Dave Burt talked about it. Um and they were right in the thick of it. And they were working the homicides then as well because the homicides were through the roof. Again, a lot oh, related to the drug the drug trade and just so many guys out there on the corners. Oh, yeah, man. Back you know, back in the early 90s, if memory serves me correctly, I met Big Joe Folks, <clears throat> excuse me, when he was a part of one of the either SEU or Strike Force units, and Burt had not yet become a detective. And the reason I think that is, I remember meeting Bert when he could still run, when he could still chase people. <laughs> and no, that's you, if I, you ask Dave, he can still chase people because yeah, he, he and Junie Demery would occasionally go on the track and uh, run a few laps and get hurt. But, you know, if you ask them, they can still do it. Yeah, what, what he was chasing was a hamstring pull. How's that? <laughs> but, <laughs> but back then, you could actually chase suspects, right? <laughs> Uh, Dave, that's the old crew right there, Mike. That is the old crew right there. You got that right. So once you did your first stint as a prosecutor, did you kind of go over to um, being a, a defense attorney, or did you move back into the, the transactional aspect of being an attorney? It was both, Jamie. I, I went back to a firm, uh, uh, one of the larger firms in town, where I began to do civil litigation, medical malpractice cases, and then I started doing criminal defense work. And 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 during that time frame, my practice sort of grew from uh, over the next nine years, it, it grew from small scale defense cases to represent representing people charged with capital murder while I did the civil work. And was that just as satisfying work as it was when you were a prosecutor? Uh, you know, the, the, the fair answer is probably yes, to be honest with you, uh-huh. in that the, the, the goal was to make sure that that trials, that my clients were, were fairly and adequately represented, mm-hmm. that they had due process. Uh, sometimes people uh, were guilty of the things they've been accused of. But but my job was to make sure that their constitutional safeguards were protected. Mm-hmm. The judges were very good back then. Uh, many of them had come from street practices, and and they were very good at, at at spotting deficiencies both in the competency of the lawyers and in the cases. So I never, I don't have any recollection of defending a case that I came away from feeling as though justice had not been served. That's the best way to put it. And did you learn a lot from like working both sides up to that point between prosecutor oh, and defense yeah. attorney? Yeah, let me tell you what I learned that was both illuminating and scary. Representing some people who were charged with super violent things. One of the things I learned was that our assumption, or at least my naive assumption, 
that the guys on the street who are out there acting up were not bright. Mm-hmm. What I learned was that many of them were extremely bright. And for one reason or another, they'd gotten off on, on a wrong trajectory. And instead of pursuing constructive things, they were on a path of destruction. But crazy bright. And that informed my thinking when I came back and ran for office, that I, I had to assume that the people we were targeting, the people we were, were policing, were intentional and, and, and were contemplative, right? And as opposed to impulsive and purely reactionary. Many of the actors, many of the, and I'll even say some of the bad actors, had a logical thought process behind what they did. It was not a constructive thought process, but it was logical. And I learned that from defense work. The other thing I learned, Jamie, was to try not to judge people, right? You, you, you sit in a small room and you get somebody's backstory and you quickly realize that it doesn't take too much in a young person's background to produce um, an offender, mm-hmm. right? And but for the grace, so many of us go. It was a humbling, humbling experience to me in that regard. And so what pushed you back into wanting to run for Commonwealth Attorney, to be the main to be the prosecutor of the city of Richmond again? Yeah, that's a good question. It was time for a change. Um, I think that I think that for a time, uh, Dave Hicks, now Judge Hicks, had had done a really good job. Uh, he, He, like I, served a long time. And it was time for him to go. And and whether that was as a result of me as a challenger or him moving on to another opportunity, it was time for him to go. And I talked to a lot of people, a lot of my peers, many of whom you know, before I decided to run. And you didn't have a long list of people, Jamie, mm-hmm. lining up to run. And I had a thriving practice. I had a wonderful partner. And I didn't want to leave that practice. Um, but I, my sense was the city needed a change. And, and so my thought was I'll do it for two terms and then come back. And that two turned out to be three and a half. <laughs> well, I know from the, the police side of it, because there were some there were some um, some frustrations, I think, between the police department and the office when um, David Hicks was running it. When when you kind of came back in, you kind of. I guess you say brought the police officers back into the fold. You changed some stuff. You kind of unlocked the doors again. Um, and you did a lot to smooth out, I think, the relationship between the police department and the, the Commonwealth Attorney's Office. I tried. You know, I tried. I think in, 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 in Dave, now Judge Hicks's defense, he was new. He was young. He was trying to do something that had not been done in Richmond. He was very different for Joe, for Joe Morrissey in, in a good way, in my opinion. Um, but, the, but you're right. The relationship was in trouble. And, and what I tried to do was make sure that the police understood that we would not always agree mm-hmm. on, on the path that a case might take or a policy. But at least we would understand where each agency stood. And, and that understanding would be a product of, as you say, open and constant communication. We don't have to come out of every conversation hugging and kissing, but at least we, we <laughs> right, at least we would know where 
where each side stood. And that, to me, made all the difference in the world. And you did. You did. You made a huge difference. I think it it carried over and it it continued all throughout um, your tenure as the uh, as the Commonwealth Attorney. Now, when you left, and you left, and Colette took over, and mm-hmm. Colette is fantastic as well. I'm gonna speak with Colette also. Did you leave? Was it prior to the unrest of 2020, or was it, it kind was. of in the middle of it? It was. It was prior to. I left in in at the end of June of 19. And then 2020 just sort of erupted in the uh, late spring of of 20. And then what were your feelings on that? Because you've Mm -hmm. been a a Richmond, you've been just embedded in Richmond for so long. Um, You've been a huge part of Richmond's growth and protecting the city. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll tell you, I'll give you my my honest two cents on that. I think that the, the reaction to George Floyd nationwide was appropriately... Uh, uh, what's the word? Outrage, mm-hmm. appropriate outrage, and 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 many Richmond officers, I, I think, felt the same way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Folks, you and I know many of whom we've already named in this, in this discussion. The <clears throat> what was a reaction to George Floyd morphed into, in many instances, just opportunists taking advantage of the moment to act up and do harm. That happened not just in Richmond but elsewhere. And Colette had to step in on day one and deal with that. She mm-hmm. had to navigate a city that on the one side had people saying, look, we're all good for peaceful protest and conversation. And then on the other, you had people saying the last thing we want is peaceful protest and conversation. We just want to be disrupted. And I think she had a tough job and she did a good job with it. From the police side, I'll say, I know there are people in RPD who knew best how to deal with and respond. I'm not sure those voices were heard. In other words, those voices might have gotten drowned out by others mm-hmm. who had a different approach. And some of what ended up happening in Richmond might have been avoided had the folks at the ground level been listened to, had clearer guidance been provided to the officers. And then again, Jamie, some of those knuckleheads on the other side, some of the would-be protesters were bound and determined to act up regardless of mm-hmm. how our RPD behaved. And so some of it was inevitable. But, the, you know, back to your question, how did I feel? I was glad I wasn't there. I mean, some days I wanted to be in the mix <laughs> helping out. Right. But I also knew that my style might not work because I, you know, there were going to be times when I would have stood up and said, this is nonsense. You know, hey, you're conflating one thing with another potentially to the detriment of your broader more constructive message and i don't know that people would have wanted to hear that from me and that brings up a point about about you personally because we've known each other for a long time and there are two instances i want to talk about one is and i don't know if you remember or not and i won't i won't use a curse word i we were talking to somebody in in conference and i believe it may have been a witness i'm not sure and you said and you and Mike, you always keep everything real across the board. You're always honest with everybody. And you kind of looked at this guy and said, I shouldn't be saying this as an elected official, but you're screwed. And I can't remember what the case was, but I had never, ever heard a prosecutor say that to somebody. And it's just yeah. just your honesty is just so, so amazing. 
Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. Unfortunately, I can't recall that episode either. <laughs> I don't even remember the circumstances. It was just like one of those flashbulb moments. I'm like, holy cow. And <laughs> just amazing. And the second part I want to just touch on briefly is you, and you may, may or may not still be against the death penalty. Is that correct? Correct. No, I'm, I'm still opposed to it. I don't think it's effective. Okay. And th- but there was one instance... And in a, a certain case in Richmond, it was completely horrific. And mm-hmm. your wife had told you that you might need to change your stance on this one time. Yeah. And uh, oh yeah. Well, if if you're thinking about the Harvey Baskerville, case, yes. Yeah, and and you know that that was my baptism by fire, as Colette had hers last last summer. I don't lose any sleep over what happened to Ricky Gray because of what Ricky Gray did. The, you know, people like you who know what happened in the Harvey basement uh, can sometimes, if you're like me, you can barely uh, think about it, visualize it and not be moved, right? Because yes, it was so horrific. It was so horrific, right. So I don't lose any sleep over what happened to Ricky Gray. I know that Ricky Gray is a product of childhood trauma. I, I know from his sentencing hearing that he was raped as a four or five year old boy, beaten brutally. I get that. And so the triggers for Ricky's behavior occurred early in his life when he was not in a position to control them. But Ricky Gray was competent. Ricky Gray knew that he was doing things that he didn't need to do. There was no reason to kill the the Harvey children, much less the Harvey adults. And then there was no reason to do what he did to the Baskervilles. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, good riddance to Ricky Gray. I'm still an opponent to the death penalty, but I had a job to do. And, and there just wasn't a, enough room for my personal views and my, my constitutional obligation. Ray Dandridge, I agreed to life without parole. 100% at peace with that mm-hmm. because he and Ricky Gray were very different. Dandridge was along the way, along for the ride, but he was literally under Gray's spell in many respects as Leroy Malvo was under John Muhammad's spell. Um, and I'm, I'm just at peace with the outcome of that case, and I'm glad I never had to prosecute another capital case to verdict. I'm, I'm glad, Jamie. I'd you know, I, I bristle at prosecutors who seem excited about going to trial on capital murder cases because for those who've been involved in them, particularly on both sides, there's nothing fun about it. It's mm-hmm. the toughest work you can do in the criminal justice system. And do you think prosecutors need to, and I mean the prosecutor, just needs to be able to, like you, stay flexible and not, I don't know if the word is change your viewpoint, but I mean, I guess be open to all aspects of it. Because like you said, you, you, you obviously are not, for the death penalty, but you, like you said, you had a job to do and you did it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's easy for me to say that I get your point and that's a fair question. It's easy for me to say, uh, I had to subordinate my personal views to my, my constitutional obligation, but, but I had, I, I kind of had to reduce it to a nice, simple calculus like that. Mm-hmm. People elected me to exercise my judgment against the backdrop of my values and my, my sort of lens of the world, but they did not elect me to be Mike Herring on criminal justice, right? The constitution doesn't elect Jamie Baines or Mike Herring, doesn't, doesn't allow for the election of individuals. It allows for constitutional officers 
or constitutional office occupied by individuals, if you appreciate the nuance. Very well said. I, and very and well I, said. I just, yeah, I just, I think electeds need to be mindful of that. It's not a cult contest. It's not a popularity show or glamour show. It's, it's a, it's a job, you know, it's not your personal avocation. It's your job. And moving forward, what is your, your hope for Richmond city? Because Richmond has been kind of having a hard time this past year. Um, yeah. with a lot going on, we were making a whole lot of progress and it kind of seemed to stalled a little bit. It may be coming back, but, um, yeah, no. what's your hope for the, the city itself? I know what you mean. I do. I feel it the same way you do. Um, people don't understand that there is no perfect formula for responding to crime and certainly not preventing crime. And the role of policing has evolved. It is evolving and and communities of Richmond has told us we want the role of policing to evolve. There's going to be a role for two things or a place for two things in that evolution. The suppression side, where you guys have to show up at scenes and remove people from the community. Plain and simple. Some people just don't belong in an ordered free society. they got to go. Mm-hmm. The prevention side is much more complicated. And it, it's going to require a whole lot of patience and a whole lot of candid conversations from the community, from the police department, from the CA's office, from the mayor's administration, right? It, the ball can't be carried just by the police department and the CA's office. It's a it's a touchy, hot potato to talk about the things that cause people to offend. And that is a burden. The burden of that discussion needs to be shared by all the agencies. When the city is ready to have that conversation, why do people offend and what can we do to prevent those triggers from happening? then I think we can bend the curve. That will take, probably, Jamie, it, that's a process that'll take more than a year, more than two, probably. Why do you I think it's so change. hard to talk about that, Mike? And I don't want to, I know we can go into this for hours, and we don't have time for that, but why do you think, and we can cl- kind of close it out on that, why are those conversations so hard to have when they truly need to be had? Yeah, because it requires you, it requires us to acknowledge that along the way we've messed up. And and and, and it requires us to acknowledge that along the way we've prioritized reaction almost to the exclusion of prevention. And, and sometimes we had no choice because there were some urgencies we simply had to deal with that we couldn't consider cause, right? Mm-hmm. But if, if all you're doing is responding to outcome and you never get to cause and you're caught in a perpetual cycle of responding to outcome, those conversations about cause, Jamie, are touchy. Uh, they, they inevitably will involve some blame. They'll, they'll involve an acknowledgement of inequity. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, they're going to involve an, an acknowledgement of powerlessness, right? Some of the problems are going to be so big when we when we come to terms with them, that we're going to back up from the table and say, "Holy cow, how on earth will we deal with this?" But to me, that's the step. That that's the moment. And until we be, until we embrace the willingness to do that, we'll just be in a cycle of response. Who needs to make it, that first step, Mike? Do you think? To be honest, I think that that step, that voice, that's got to come out of City Hall. I tried to do that in my last term. I I tried to initiate discussions on root cause. 
But if it's just the Commonwealth's attorney aided by the police department, former Chief Smith, Will Smith, he was he was a good a big proponent of some of those conversations. But if if it was just the CA pushing a conversation on root cause, it's just not going anywhere because yeah. my the bullet bullpit of the office just wasn't tall enough, wasn't big enough. It's really got to come out of City Hall. But it's a risky conversation for a mayor to initiate. I I get it. And that's it's sad it has to be that way, but I agree. It has to be a partnership of many different organizations. That's right. That's right. And people don't understand that. People think this that the the the, 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 the hands on this or ought to be one the police department and two the Commonwealth Attorney's Office, but that's a big boat, and and the, those two <laughs> sets of hands ain't gonna yeah they're just not gonna row that boat. It's right. not gonna work. Well, Mike, I really appreciate you coming on. I, I love talking to you. I love hearing your ideas. I hope you come back and talk to us again. That'd be just fantastic. For sure. I love it. And congrats to you. This is great. Uh, th- we need to be doing more of this, Jamie, so keep it up. All right, man. I appreciate it. You take care of yourself. You too, pal. Have a good day. All right, Mike. Bye. Bye-bye. That's it, guys. What would you think? Mike's experiences as a prosecutor and as a defense attorney are fascinating to me. The two sides can appear to be completely antagonistic, yet the end goal is essentially the same, justice. Justice for victims in society, but also justice for the person accused. It's a good thing to keep in mind when reading through media stories which seem intent on judging a person, political party, or organization without seeking both sides of the story. Mike makes so many fantastic points in the interview it's hard to condense them into this outro. However, one of the biggest takeaways for me was that it takes many hands to row a boat as big as Richmond. And in order to get all those hands on that oar, tough, honest conversations need to be had, and they need to be had sooner rather than later. Take care of each other, and thanks for listening.